This is Sportsnet Today, and you're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Now here are your hosts, Israel and Alex. On Air is back for another week live for two hours. Sportsnet 650, Sportsnet 960 every Saturday. I'm Israel Fair. I'm a staff editor at The Athletic based in Vancouver. And I'm Alex Blair, former feature producer with Hockey Night in Canada based in Calgary. You can text us 650-650 or find us on Twitter. I'm at Israel Fair. Alex's handle is ACPWBlair. On today's show, we'll talk to Sportsnet's Dan Murphy and Stephen Brunt. But first, Alex, some big news in the NHL. So we've got a pretty natural place to start our weekly headlines. Yes, uh, and this will probably take up the first few minutes here. Um, a big trade. And it was one that wasn't all that unexpected after, you know, the the long dispute that had dragged on between Patrick Liney and the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, the very quick to boil situation in Columbus between uh, the Blue Jackets, John Tortorella, Pierre-Luc Dubois, and they consummate that deal this morning. And uh, as Dominic said on the sports update there, Pierre-Luc Dubois uh, becomes a Winnipeg Jet uh, along with a 2022 third round pick and going the other way is Patrick Line and Jack Roslevic. Just sort of your your initial impressions to this deal before we sort of break it down here. I think that uh, the reaction around the league uh, by fans, either local fans, so people in Winnipeg, people in Columbus, and then kind of the the average fan, the, the, the hockey fan, has been really interesting. And these are two guys that have been in trade rumors for a while, uh, Lane especially. The Lane getting out of Winnipeg talk stretches back years at this point, and Pierre-Luc Dubois, obviously, that's ratcheted up in the last couple of weeks. But uh, even going back to last season, there were rumblings that he wasn't necessarily super happy in Columbus. So we get a bit of a, a challenge trade here between two guys. And Roslovich is also, he's you know, he's a nice player. He's had He hasn't had huge opportunity in the NHL, but uh, a, a first-round pick, someone that people still think has a lot of potential, still a young player. But I think we're mostly focused on the two guys uh, Dubois and Lane and we're getting what's interesting to me is just the reaction to where those two guys are as players Uh, there's certainly a contingent of fans that think that Patrick Lane because of his scoring ability and you go back to his first couple seasons in the league uh, his scoring numbers were you know Ovechkin like Uh, at least that was the trajectory that people had in mind for him the last couple of years uh, have been a little bit more up and down and whereas Pierre-Luc Dubois fits into that mold uh, that he's really developed in the last couple of years as, as a really strong, uh, he's got that two-way type game, though I think some people might have some more questions about his defense uh, than is maybe the perception. But to me, it looks like a couple of young guys uh, who weren't necessarily thrilled with their current opportunities getting a chance to reset a little bit and also take that next step. Because I, I think whether you prefer Lane, whether you prefer Dubois, that at this point, we're still not entirely sure what the ceiling are is for either guy. And so here comes an opportunity for them to uh, to reset. And look, uh, I'm not one that often says that the athletes, uh, you know, it's it's their fault necessarily for for situations. But there's there's another excuse out the door for either guy at this point. Right. Yeah, it's uh, this is a classic. You take my garbage. I'll take your garbage in the sense that. Both players had made it very clear to their respective clubs that they did not want to sign long-term, and there was a little bit of pressure on both Yarmo Kekalainen in Columbus 
and Kevin Shevel Day off in Winnipeg. Um, you know, we've talked, and it's no secret that, you know, a number one or a number two center in this league is an incredibly valuable asset. And that's what the Winnipeg Jets are getting in Pierre-Luc Dubois. Um, if you look at it now, down the center, the Winnipeg Jets have Mark Shifley, Pierre-Luc Dubois, they have Paul Stastny, Adam Lowry, who they really like in that third-line center role, yep. and then Nate Thompson, who does a really good job in that fourth line. It looks like Stastny will be the one that gets moved to the wing to open up sure. space, but that one-two punch of Shifley and Dubois, this was something we talked about in our NHL season preview, When you, when, um, especially when you look at the North Division. You look at Vancouver with Pedersen and Horvat. Um, you look at, um, you know, Toronto with Matthews and um, you look at John Tavares there. There's a lot mm -hmm. of depth. The, the teams that are going to do uh, really well in this division have really good depth down the middle, and especially in those, one, uh, those top two lines. It was something that you could argue Winnipeg wasn't quite there. I, th I don't know if you can make that argument anymore. Yeah, that's a good um, point, Alex, because uh, you look at Winnipeg and as as much as I think I'm actually on the side that Patrick Laine's upside is higher than maybe the average person, I still think that getting a goal scorer with that kind of talent is hugely valuable. But they've got Kyle Connor, who's a, a really good NHL goal scorer. They've got Nick Ehlers, who brings another dynamic as a puck carrier, a bit of a playmaker, also a guy that can score goals too on the wing. So it's not like they are trading their one bona fide goal scoring winger to solidify another spot, a spot that we both agree is really important. They're trading a guy that maybe has a higher ceiling than Kyle Connor and Nick Ehlers, but the consistency hasn't been there. And Pierre-Luc Dubois, at worst, I think is going to be like a, a, a really solid contributor, especially if it's in that number two slot. And we'll get to the Canucks start in a bit, but you look at what the Canucks have gone through the first week or so of the season uh, has not been great. But Bo Horvat has been their best player, the guy that we would say is their number two center. You go back to the bubble. Bo Horvat played really well for the Canucks. When Bo Horvat was playing well, the Canucks were winning games. So now Winnipeg's in a spot where uh, they've got a little bit, I guess, an easier deployment for Paul Maurice to, to roll out because he doesn't necessarily have to try to find a perfect fit for a guy that, again, I think has very high upside and has the potential to be a 50-goal scorer in the NHL. This makes things a little bit easier, especially given the context that you just added there, Alex. Within this division, obviously, we won't see Pierre-Luc Dubois play for Winnipeg for a couple of weeks due to the quarantine. But uh, long term, uh, something that I think Jets fans would be pretty excited about. Yeah, and I, and I think the immediate impact for both Vancouver and Calgary is the Winnipeg Jets got better. Uh, Jack Roslovic was not playing. He was holding out and skating in Columbus, his hometown. And outside of a three-point opening night for Line, he had been on the injured reserve with sort of a minor injury. So the Jets get better in an already very competitive Canadian North division. Um, you touched on Roslovic. It was really interesting. One of the things that came out of my reporting on the building Brock Doc in talking with Brock's family was that they were convinced that in the 2015 draft, the Jets were going to take Brock Besser. And the Jets had two picks in that draft. They had one, I think it was 17th. And that's where they took Kyle Connor. And then they had the second pick, which came in that Evander Kane trade with Buffalo, was 25th. And I think if you look at it, I think there's a good chance that had Brock Besser still been there, they would have taken him at 25. I think he was the player that they wanted. Uh, but when the Canucks snatched him up at 23rd, they went in a different direction. 
Um, and by all accounts, where we're at right now is that Roslovic wanted top six minutes. He wanted yeah. a top six role, and that did not exist for him in Winnipeg. That that role should exist for him in Columbus. And in, in a lot of ways, it was the same situation with Line. Like, he wanted to be... Um, he wanted more minutes. He wanted more responsibility. But when you look at what they had at the top of that lineup, um, I just don't think that he was going to warrant it. Um, let's sort of move on here a little bit. Let's get to, you touched on the Canucks start. We'll touch on both the Canucks and the Flames, even though the Flames have sort of, you know, came out of the gate red hot and then had to sort of sit and cool their heels for most of the week. Yeah. But we'll we'll start with Vancouver because they play tonight in the third and final game of this sort of three-game home set against Montreal. Um Quickly, um, Vancouver has been full of concern all week, and in some cases, rightfully so. I'm not sure anybody expected the Canucks to look this disjointed, this um, unprepared based on their maturation level. What's What's been the biggest thing that stood out to you and, and the biggest surprise or concern that you have with this team through the first six games? The play, the game on Thursday night, uh, is about as bad as I've seen a Canucks team in a long time. It was it was ugly. A lot. Of, I don't think Montreal's played all that well. I don't think they played all that well in the first two games. Obviously, the Canucks get a, a shootout win in the first one, so they they salvage it from a point perspective. But the way that they have played, whether it's uh, the games against Edmonton, the games against Calgary, the games against Montreal, they have had very few bright moments. And I do think that the thing that stands out to this point, the headliner, though I don't. I'm not sounding any alarms. I don't think that it's cause for concern long term is that Elias Pettersson has not been the game breaker that he's uh, come to be in the first two years that he's had in the league. That's a big factor in the play. I mean, we saw the immediate impact that JT Miller had when he came back in the lineup. Adding a player of his caliber is going to make a difference, but you still need the main driving pieces. The long term concern, and this is one that's now been impacted even further by injuries, is the play on defense, the play of the blue line. This is a team that needs to rely on its defensemen to get the puck out, to start breakouts. There's only so much that you can ask of Bo Horvat and Elias Pettersson in terms of tracking back. And I'm not talking about their defensive play. I'm talking about the transition play at this point, getting the puck out of the defensive zone and starting attacks. And look, we've seen uh, all of the the big Canadians goals from the, the two games that they play prior to tonight's game that stood out are Odd man rushes, players being completely left open in the offensive zone, uh, breakdowns all over the place. It's been ugly. Now Alex Edler is out injured. Travis Hamanick, who uh, did not play well to my eye up until his injury either. That was a concern. Oli Ulevi has been extremely sheltered and has not exactly come in and lit the world on fire. I actually thought Jalen Chatfield played a pretty solid game in his debut. Yeah, I would agree with you there. But at the same point, it's the kind of the same thing. Nate Schmidt's been fine. Quinn Hughes has been fine. Uh, you would hope to, to have maybe probably a little bit more from Quinn Hughes. Again, same with Pedersen, not sounding any alarms, just the play of the, the first week or so. And when you have these injuries, that stuff catches up. And we've seen these Canucks in the Travis Green era, when they have struggled the most, it's when they've been depleted on the blue line. Uh, you look back to a couple of years ago when they had Ben Hutt and Troy Stetcher as their top pair, and that pair was playing 27 minutes a night, and the team was losing a lot of games. 
you would hope that they'd be in a better place, at least with Hughes and Schmidt. Uh, and I mean, we can probably dive into the Tyler Myers situation as we go on through the show, avoiding a suspension for his hit, taking a lot of penalties, doing sort of what we have come to expect from him, some highs, some lows. But to me, it, the blue line is is a big key. And uh, look, I haven't, we haven't even mentioned goaltending. I think the goaltending has been okay. But yeah. when, when we'll, t- well, we'll talk about Calgary in a second, uh, I'm sure they're thrilled with the goaltending that they've gotten from the guy who was playing here in Vancouver for the last few years. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the Flames have gotten what you expected from Markstrom and Tanev through three games. When I look at the Canucks, I see, you know, Nate Schmidt has not been what I thought he was going to be. That's not to say he can't get there. Um, but Travis Hamanick looks like a player who hasn't played hockey in almost a year. And a little bit of that, I think, could be circumstantial in the sense that it was really tough that when he came in, he had to quarantine. He wasn't even able to do a training camp, really, and then got thrown into the lineup because of the Jordy Ben COVID situation. Um, but the biggest concern for me is when I look back to the last three games in the bubble against Vegas, who at that point was a legitimate Stanley Cup contender and remains a legitimate Stanley Cup contender. This is without Jacob Markstrom in those last three games. This is when he went down. The Canucks buckled down. They played as as solid defensively as they had. We talked right. to Satyar Shaw at the time, and he talked about how Travis had made conscious efforts to sort of change the structure without Markstrom in net. But they allowed four goals over three games against a very good Vegas Golden Knights team. And I was sort of suspecting that we were going to see sort of that as the baseline to start this year and potentially some growth off of that. And quite frankly, they, they've they circled back almost like two years. I mean, they look... I thought the, the comment from Travis Green was so appropriate. They look so immature. They just looked incredibly disconnected. They look like a bunch of rookies who, you know, had some skill but just had no sense of what to do. And... um yeah, I, I mean, I, I know we want to get onto the hit here quickly because I, I think what's notable, I mean, the hit happened a couple nights ago, but the Montreal Canadiens have made the decision to bring Corey Perry off the taxi squad um, for this game tonight. We all know what Corey Perry does, what he does effectively. <laughs> and I do, listen, I I think you can argue the hit either way. When you look at the video, it was, a, it was you know, in real speed, it's really hard to determine. But... You know, if that's if that's a Montreal Canadiens defender on Brock Besser or Elias Pettersson, I think, you know, as a Canuck fan, you would be wanting some sort of supplemental discipline. I, I think that's fair to say. Like that was a it was a hit in a dangerous position at at best. And by the league not doing anything, it puts the onus on the players tonight to sort this out themselves. And you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Hopefully nothing significant happens. But Vancouver does not have a particularly great history of retribution being settled on ice at Rogers Arena slash GM place. Yeah. And, you know, when the league doesn't step in to sort of do that, it in some ways it doesn't give the players much of a choice, you know. And that would be my only concern tonight as, you know, we, we go up and we see what happens in this in this third game. But I, th- I think Montreal's looked really good. Even the game that... The Canucks won on Wednesday. I didn't think the Canucks looked particularly good. So that's that was a bit of a concern. Um, let's quickly shift to the Flames. They've only played three games, but they're 2-0-1. 
if you look at the standings, they're sitting in fourth, but by point percentage, they are the best team in the North Division with a winning percentage of 833. What did you take from their final, you know, their second two games, the ones against Vancouver, where, you know, they looked they looked deep, they looked solid. And uh it, as we as we talked about, it looked like Markstrom did what what you were expecting Markstrom to do for them. Yeah, Markstrom was standout. That's something that Vancouver fans got accustomed to seeing from him the last two years, especially to me, I went into the season pretty high on Calgary. I think that while you, maybe you can quibble on the edges, they've got pretty good depth with their talent players and uh, reading some of the insight coming out of Calgary in terms of how they want to, to run their team. Uh, there's a very strong play uh, down with the, the right wingers for this group right now uh, that are guys like Dylan Dubé or Josh Levo who can skate, who can make things happen in the offensive zone, who can forecheck, who can who can bring that element. Uh, and I think the Flames fans are pretty comfortable with what they're going to get from Matthew Kachuk especially, I think Lindholm as well. And then the X-Factors are the same guys that it's been for a couple of years. It's Goudreau and Monaghan. And uh, they had some moments against the Canucks. They 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 made some plays. They scored some goals. If that's going to happen throughout the season, then you have to feel pretty happy uh, with what you've got in Calgary. And uh, I think the blue line, Giordano, still going to be a really solid player. And Rasmus Anderson stepping into a bigger role, that's, uh, that's a big plus. And when you throw the Markstrom equation there, you look at where Calgary was with their goaltending last year. David Riddich has had some, some good runs as an NHL goalie. But Jacob Markstrom has proven over the last couple of years that he can be a really solid guy and make some some big saves. Uh, Canucks didn't play particularly well against Calgary either, but they had a, a really strong first period. Markstrom kept Calgary in the game, made a bunch of big saves, and then the Flames offense clicked in the second period, and it was it was all downhill for Vancouver. So that's that's a a, a big difference maker, and we can argue the merits of a long-term contract for the goalie, but for this group right now, uh, it's been it's been a difference. And if if Lindholm and Kachuk do their thing, if some of those depth players like Bennett, Dubé, Levo do their thing, and Goudreau and Monaghan can step up and be offensive contributors, then you you really have to like where Calgary's positioned in the in the Canadian division. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. I think you could you could see the Calgary Flames get their footing in that first period against the Canucks where, you know, the Canucks were driving play. They had the edge. They, they looked like they were dominating the game. And after the first period, you know, Markstrom held them in there. It could have been easily two, nothing, three, nothing. And, you know, it was sort of like after that, it was like the flames like, Oh, we have a goalie now, you know, we can just go out and play. And for the next 40 minutes, they took it to Vancouver. Um, I think what you said as well, I thought it was encouraging to see Johnny Gaudreau play the way he did. Yes, he got some points, but I thought it was also his zone entries, just the way he was sort of making things happen. He was creating space for other players. He looked to me to be a little more engaged and a little more of the Johnny Gaudreau that we saw from a couple of years ago. Um, really quickly, let's switch it up here. We've got two big conference championship games in the NFL there was some news yesterday regarding Patrick Mahomes, the reigning NFL MVP, who returns from sort of proto, uh, injury protocol. And uh, what do you like about the two games that we have going this weekend? Pretty great matchups. I think you look at the NFC, you've got all-time quarterbacks, Rodgers, Brady, story rights itself. Uh, you've got 
Brady first season in Tampa. Can he bring the, the winning touch from New England down to a group that's got a lot of talent offensively? He's got a pretty solid defense as well. Uh, was able to didn't they didn't play all that well against New Orleans. That game was really uh, a Drew Brees show on, on the wrong end uh, toward the end of his career. And I think the AFC matchup's awesome. Kansas City with Patrick Mahomes is about as exciting uh, a team as you're going to get. And Buffalo, Buffalo showed up in their last game, and they've been really solid in these playoffs. They've got a really legit defense. And if Josh Allen is going to play at an all-pro level, they've, they're going to be in this game. And he, as I said on the show last week, outside of a little blip in the middle of the season, he has been ascending since then. So he started the season really strong. People started to take notice, though there's still maybe some questions about his long-term game. And then this couple game blip in the middle of the season, okay, well, it's all over. And since then, he's still trending up. And if he can make some big throws against the Kansas City defense, that's okay, but is not standout, then there's the potential for a couple of classic games to be played out between, you know, two younger quarterbacks that are very exciting and then two kind of the, the masters of the game and with solid supporting casts around them. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty excited for these games. What, what stands out to you? Well, it, I think the thing that stood out to me was it's the first playoff matchup that we have between Brady and, and Rogers, you know, and here's Brady at, you know, age 43 Rogers at 37. And, you know, this is the first chance that we're getting to see them play. I mean, I I think you could argue that, you know, Aaron Rodgers is still in his prime. I don't think that Tom Brady is, but he's such a good game manager. And I look at that and I'm just curious to see how this sort of experience and that just sort of ability to to get his team to win keeps the Bucks in it against the Packers. Um, and, you know, on the flip side, I mean, I'm excited to sort of see Buffalo and, and see that like they to me they have a really balanced attack. Yeah. You know, like like Kansas City's really good in the air. They're yep. really good offensively. But I look at Buffalo and think, can they can they overcome it in the aggregate? You know, like can they can they put together, you know, a really good 60 minutes that way? So um we'll dive into both the Blue Jays and Major League Baseball and the NFL picture a little more in hour two with Steven Brunt. Uh, but coming up next, we've got Dan Murphy. We can break down the week that was for the Vancouver Canucks. We can also look back at uh, the Calgary Flames. They're really hot start, and they get back at it tomorrow here in Calgary. They've got an early afternoon game to Mountain, uh, and they welcome in the Toronto Maple Leafs. And uh, so we'll get into that next with Dan Murphy. And uh, what are you excited to talk to Murph about? Yeah, I definitely want his impressions on what's going on with the Canucks right now. Uh, this is uh, got some people sounding alarm bells about the top players and then the team overall and uh, just what it's like uh, to be broadcasting some of these games in this environment. Uh, we'll dig into that with Dan Murphy coming up next. This is On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. This is Sportsnet Today, and you're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Now here are your hosts, Israel and Alex. On air rolls on, Israel Fair, Alex Blair, live on Sportsnet 650 and Sportsnet 960 every Saturday. Coming up in this segment, we'll chat with Sportsnet's Dan Murphy on uh, the latest in the NHL, where the Canucks are at, a bit of a concerning start to the season 
they wrap up a three-game set. Uh, it's just like baseball. Uh, so you've got these mini-series, two-game sets, three-game sets. of uh, The third game this week against the Montreal Canadiens, an early start out west, 4 o'clock Pacific time for the Canucks. If you're listening on Sportsnet 650, all-day coverage continues from us right through the pregame show with Satyar Shah, right through the game and the postgame show. So plenty of Canucks coverage if you're listening on Sportsnet 650 coming up today. Uh, we'll bring Murph on in a sec here, Alex, but uh, we talked about it a little bit in, in the opening segment, uh, our biggest concern. Neither of us really went with goaltending, but what have you made of the goaltending so far this year? I, I assume that we'll see Braden Holtby tonight uh, play again. They've gone on, off, on, off so far this year. Uh, there hasn't been a, a ton of cries about the goaltending being a serious issue, but the Canucks still are giving up a ton of goals. I think, you know, it's just hard to tell. Uh, it's hard to tell to me because the Canucks have been just so loose defensively that uh, when I look at it, I don't think that either Holpe or Demko have played particularly poorly. Uh, their numbers don't look particularly great. But, you know, there's also been, you know, a lot of wide open chances. The defending has been really difficult. Um yeah, my, my concern does not yet ride with the goaltending. Uh, it rides with basically the overall team defense that we're seeing from this group. And uh, yeah, I mean, you touched on it as well. I mean, both Pedersen and Hughes to this point have not looked particularly good. I know there are some sort of rumblings that Hughes may already be, you know, a little banged up here. Yeah. And to be honest, I thought that might be the case even before it started to kind of get out there. And you know, it's you try to read into things a little bit. The way that Hamannick kind of raced across the ice um, in the second game, I think it was against Montreal, to sort of stand up for Hughes, I thought was maybe telling. Like, if he's already been targeted a bit, he's already a little injured. Um, I mean, it wasn't a smart play on Hamannick's part. I mean, it left Tyler to fully wide open. But little things like that, you know, make me think that maybe they felt like they hadn't stood up for him enough before and that, you know, he needed to in this occasion. So... Um, but I'm curious to see who the Canucks have on defense tonight. You know, it's been a bit of a revolving door here for the last, you know, 36 hours. So, um, yeah, looking forward to it. All right. We'll bring him in on that now. It's Dan Murphy from Sportsnet. He joins us on air. Murph, uh, we'll get into the Canucks in a sec. Uh, obviously, lots to talk about given the way that the first week and a half of the season has played out. But uh, blockbuster trade that involves a Canadian team, a team the Canucks are going to see plenty of this year. Uh, Dubois won't play for Winnipeg for at least a couple of weeks, which I think means he'll miss at least one of the games against the Canucks. But uh, with people already talking about playoff positioning, so on and so forth, what's your lean on how this uh, plays out for Winnipeg this year and, and if this makes them uh, you know, more of a threat for the Canucks in, in that playoff race in the Canadian division? I mean, when I look at the trade, I, I always kind of think you go with the stud center. Um, and so I, I do kind of like the trade more for Winnipeg uh, than Columbus at this point. But I mean, uh, you know, Line has been the lead goal scorer in this league since he came in. So um, they're giving up a mighty good winner. I'm just kind of curious to see how, um, you know, Winnipeg will use him. Will they use him as a, a second line C uh, or might they put him on the wing um, on that top line? It's going to be very interesting to see, but as long as he's motivated, uh, as long as he's not pouting now and he's, he's out of Columbus, um, I think that uh, they've got an excellent player there and, and perhaps one with more value than, than Line and, uh, and Rostovich. And I guess they get a, a draft pick too. So 
I think it makes the Jets better, but I could be easily proven wrong. I mean, it looks like something that uh, both teams got uh, very valuable players, um, and both both teams obviously had to give up very valuable players. Murph, before we shift to the Canucks here, just curious, reflecting back on the Calgary Flames last weekend, um, two players that you have spent a lot of time covering, both in Jacob Markstrom and Chris Tanev, um, just sort of your assessment of how, they, how, how they've impacted the Calgary lineup, what you saw from the Flames, and how they're adjusting to Calgary so far. Well, I mean, I think they both were, you know, exactly how we remember them from last season. I mean, Markstrom gave them a real quality goaltending. Um, Tanev was his dependable uh, defensive self. Uh, I think that the Flames must be, you know, ecstatic with that. But for me, more so with the Flames is that their top guys are going again. I mean, last season was certainly an off season for Gaudreau and, and Monaghan and even Lindholm for that matter. But if those guys are going, um, I think the Flames, I would put them in like I, the, the teams that I think that are going to make the playoffs in, in the North, the top three. I do believe it's going to be Toronto, Calgary, and Montreal. That's just um, in my eyes. And I think uh, if that top line is going and if uh, Goudreau finds his stride again, I mean, he's a couple seasons off and putting up 100 points. Um, I think that the Calgary Flames could be extremely dangerous despite the fact that they lost uh, TJ Brody on the blue line. So uh, I was impressed with what I saw. Again, it's early, but I think that they're going to get great goaltending from Markstrom. And I think Tanov, if healthy, provides them exactly what they thought they were getting. Sportsnet's Dan Murphy joins us on air. Uh, Murph, the Thursday night game against Montreal, obviously coming mm-hmm. off a shootout win, but a game that still raised some concerns within the fan base about the team's play overall, some of the defensive play. To me, that was about as bad as we've seen the Canucks in, in quite a while. We don't have sort of the crowd reaction to gauge exactly how the games are playing out these days, but you're in that that empty building, mostly empty building, uh, watching the team. What what was that game like to, to take in where it was, you know, all the bad stuff from the game on Wednesday and, and really none of the good stuff? Well, yeah, Wednesday, I mean, I think defensively, um, if you look at the two games, Wednesday there was some horrendous reads and defensive errors. And I think you guys were mentioning Hamannick right before I came on uh, with the play where he kind of went to support Quinn Hughes at the, uh, at the boards, leaving to Foley wide open. He also left his spot on that power play that, uh, the Toffoli back door goal, I think, uh, was scored as well. So some 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 bad reads and miscues uh, there, um, but they managed to somehow get a, a victory, and even though blowing the late lead. Um, but then Thursday, I, I kind of agree with Travis Green. It was more real self-inflicted wounds, like just bad giveaways by some veteran players. I know the first one was Brogan Rafferty, but after that, you know, Nate Schmidt had a bad giveaway. Elias Pedersen is not a veteran, but one of their best players had a bad giveaway at the blue line on the, on the power play. So just some real uncharacteristic uh, plays. And, you know, I think you can attribute it to a couple things. Uh, I think that they were gassed, especially the defensemen, uh, after playing with only five defensemen for two games. Um, I also think that uh, these guys, uh, in Pedersen's case especially, um, you know, I don't think you can ever question his try. And in fact, right now, perhaps uh, he's trying too hard and trying to do a little bit too much because the numbers aren't there for him. And this is foreign for, for Pedersen, right? I mean, it's never been hard for him since he came in the league, really, right? He's always made it work. And this is the first stretch where um, you look at him and say, it doesn't look right. Now, I'm not saying there's something wrong with him. Um, and obviously, he's one game away from finding it. 
but uh, just overall, you have, first off, bad reads and bad defensive structure. Compound that with some just ghastly giveaways, uh, and that's why the score was run up the way it was. Murph, one of the things that uh, Izzy and I chatted about off the top of the show was just the, the last time we saw this team in the bubble against a really good Vegas Golden Knights team without Jacob Markstrom and Nett, they seemed to buckle down and play a, a, a very good defensive structure. They only allowed four goals in three games against, you know, as I mentioned, a really good team. And I know for myself, I was thinking that that was going to be sort of the baseline that we saw this team start with this year. Um, and maybe sort of develop from there, you know, sort of getting familiar with some of the new bodies. Um, but, you know, it seems like they kind of regressed from there. How much how much of this start do you think is the system that they're playing? Um, and how do you sort of look back on what they seem to build in the playoffs and yet how they've started this year? Yeah, I mean, I think in the playoffs, I, I look at, you know, the the Minnesota series, they were, they were very solid. I thought they were exceptional in the um, St. Louis series, especially when, you know, battling back from uh, adversity in a few games, giving up goals and, and finding a way to pull out a series against a very good team. They were outmatched versus Vegas, no question, but you're right. They, they kind of just hunkered down uh, and they had a chance to win game seven. And you still remember that save on, on Brock Bester on the two-on-one when it was 0-0. So I think they're going to have to kind of uh, kitty bar the door here, uh, park the bus for what it's worth, um, because you, you can't be opening up this way uh, especially when your top guys aren't going. Um, maybe you can be opportunistic with the power play, but you can't be given a team like Montreal that has weapons on, on all four lines a chance to score goals. Um, so I think you're right, Alex. I think that they have to kind of uh, employ a simpler system at this point, uh, a much more defensive system, perhaps a more boring system. Uh, but they're going to have to you know, support their goaltenders more than they have so far because it's kind of been unfair on Holtby and Demko at this point. Uh, they need more support. Uh, they need a better defensive structure. If that means uh, playing a duller system, uh, a more boring style of hockey, so be it. It hasn't been completely without positives, so I'll, I'll go to one of the more positive Canucks storylines of the season. Bo Horvat's looked pretty much like the guy that we saw at the peak of his powers in the bubble. He's played great. He's driving play. He's scoring goals. I mean, that shot is about as good as we've seen it. Uh, he scored I mean, a couple of goals so far this year that look like some of the highlight goals that he had uh, in the playoffs. What have you made of Horvat's really strong start to the season and the, the guys that kind of need to, to follow up behind the captain? At least he's setting an, a pretty strong example. Yeah, I mean, I, we had a graphic there on, on Thursday about his power play production, where it's been in terms of the rest of the league in the last two seasons from the start of, what, uh, 1920. Um, and I think there's only three guys in front of him right now in terms of power play production. I think it's Zabinijad, uh, Dreisaitl, and I believe Pasternak are the only guys who have scored more power play goals. Uh, so he's elite. And I, I think the addition of Miller on that power play really helps because you have the left shot over on that half wall. It allows him to have that one-timer, uh, whether it's coming from below the net uh, or from the half also from Besser or Miller. So I think that's worked out uh, very well for him. That's been a positive. I think the play of Brock Besser has been a positive with all those questions about if he still had the same shot, the, the velocity, the release. I think those have been answered. He's, he's employing a more shoot-first mentality. So I think that's been great. It's just, I mean, I, I think we see that this team last season um, was really driven by strong, strong goaltending, elite goaltending, um, and a, an exceptional first line and great power play. And when you know elements of the first line, and I'm talking Patterson, aren't aren't going yet, 
it's going to make it very difficult for this team to repeat what it did uh, last year. And when you're having these defensive breakdowns, uh, maybe the Wednesday game with Jacob Marshman, that maybe the first to fully shot was safe. Maybe they win that game, you know, uh, 4-3, right? Maybe it doesn't go to overtime and, and, and they, they need to win the shootout. So uh, there's a lot. I think there's a lot of reason for concern. It kind of seems like their record is worse than 2-4 and four at this point. And I would say they're at a bit of a critical juncture. I mean, this is, what, two more games, and they'll be 15% of the way through the season. So uh, there's not much time to iron out the kinks. I mean, you've got to figure it out. It doesn't help uh, that they're without Adler. They're without Hamannick. Uh, I don't know if Chatfield can go tonight. Uh, we should find that out uh, sometime soon when the coach talks, if he if indeed he does. Um, so, you know, there's there's no white uh, no white knight riding anymore, kind of like uh, JT Miller did into Calgary. They've got to figure this out with what they have. Um, and if they don't figure it out in the next two weeks, um, I mean, I don't think it's uh, hyperbole to say the season in terms of at least of a playoff spot, could be almost lost. You touched on the uh, potential back-end changes for the Canucks there and that uh, we'll likely find them out here in the next little bit. Um, One of the moves Montreal appears to be making for tonight is the uh, insertion of Corey Perry into their lineup. And I think we all know sort of what Corey Perry is good at and what he sort of can contribute at this point of his career. What were your thoughts on sort of the league's decision not to discipline Tyler Myers? And, you know, we talked about it a little earlier, Murph, just sort of the pressure that a no decision from the league puts on the players to sort of, I don't know, settle it, you know, for themselves, if you will. I'm just sort of wondering what sort of situation you see unfolding tonight, potentially. Well, I mean, I I don't think that Tyler Myers would have any problem uh, answering the bell with with Corey Perry. I mean, that's that's for certain. We do know what Perry's good at. He's still an exceptional net front presence. He's still very good on the power play. He doesn't drive play like he used to, but he can be a pain in the rear end. He can put a stick where you don't want it to be. Um, I mean, Josh Anderson's a a different animal. I mean, if he goes after Myers, that's that's a tough (laughs) track. But you could also say we take you know Josh Anderson off the ice for five minutes. uh, Let's go for it, right? I mean, I think he even fought Char and did well and, and maybe perhaps even won the fight last yeah. season or the season before. So, um, yeah, I, I, listen, I didn't hate the hit like a lot of people. I didn't like it. I didn't hate it, though. Like, I thought the first angle we showed did show that he hit more chests and rode up. Um, you know, again, this guy's six foot eight or six foot seven or whatever he is. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I thought he, we went out of position to make the hit. He was probably frustrated by already spending so much time in the penalty box. Um, but I didn't hate it. Uh, I would have been fine with a one-game suspension just to quell this angst uh, that you're talking about, perhaps to mm-hmm. at least cool it down a little bit. Uh, but, you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean as far as uh, being on TV tonight, I don't mind the fact that Myers is playing. I mean, there's going to be eyeballs on there to see what happens. Um, but it was a very questionable hit, and uh, if the league thought five in a game was enough, I'm cool with that. But I also think that perhaps a one-game suspension could have been just as well. It's one of the wrinkles of this season, isn't it? With uh, We're already talking about the potential retribution aspect with the team that the, the Canucks have just played twice already this week. Uh, I'm actually a pretty big fan of the baseball schedule idea. I don't think that it's something that the league should necessarily explore. Uh, you know, every matchup needs to be a series, but I do think it's something that they could probably revisit when uh, the pandemic is is over and we're back to a regular travels plan. What have you made of uh, these back-to-backs or in this case, uh, a best of three between the same teams and, and the, the impact that it's had on the game? Um, I mean, this is kind of the first time it's, it's, 
it's reared its head in terms of, uh, you know, what it could provide, right, with some nastiness. We didn't really see it in the two games with Edmonton. We didn't really see it in the two games with Calgary. That's the first three games that we've seen. I do like elements of it, um, you know, but I, you know, I, I think that by the end of the season, we'll have had enough of the All-Canadian division. I really do. I just think seeing the same teams over and over and over and over again, um, for me anyway, I, I think is going to get old. I would take any season away they gave it to us this year. I mean, I'm more than happy to be working, and if this is the way they can get it done, let's do it. But I'm more of a fan of seeing all the teams in the league, and I think when you incorporate all the teams in the league, then you're taking away the chance to have Montreal in town for three days, right? This is not going to happen. You only play them twice a year, once home, once road. Uh, But maybe you could explore it a little bit with a a back-to-back on home ice for versus a Western Conference team, and I'd be for that. I mean, remember they we saw that a little bit back when they went to the real heavy uh, div- interdivision uh, schedule. Yeah, the eight I think games. They had back-to-backs with Minnesota, the same city, and that kind of stuff. So yeah. you know, I'm I'm not against it, especially if it happens later in the year and there's and there's playoff consequences because then I think it gets very interesting. Sportsnet's Dan Murphy joining us on air. Uh, before we get you out of here, Murph, uh, quickly, it was a storyline to start the year. I'm just wondering how the start that the Canucks are on potentially could impact the Travis Green contract extension. Um, do you see the way the team has started putting the pressure on ownership, putting the pressure on Travis? Um, does something need to budge here if this continues? Well, I mean, this is the this is the what you talked about, right? If they got off to a bad start, then how would the feelings go? I mean, you don't want Travis Green stewing not only the bad team, but also thinking, hey, is this costing me a chance at a at an extension? Because I think most people believe he's probably due for one uh, heading into the season. So, uh, if the team doesn't turn things around, I think this becomes much more of a storyline, right? He's not going to want to answer questions about it. Uh, but he's certainly going to be thinking about it. I don't think it will weigh on the minds of the players, to be honest. I don't think they get distracted by this kind of stuff. Uh, but certainly between uh, – I, I think it's probably more between Travis and ownership and Jim's the middleman, um, trying to find a way to, to broker peace or to get it done. Uh, but certainly I think uh, the longer this goes with the team playing poorly, the bigger the story it becomes. Well, the season certainly hasn't gotten off to the start that Canucks fans were hoping for, but I do think I speak for most of them, probably all of them, that, that we are really happy to see you and Shorty and Cheech back on the broadcast. It's been uh, it's been really nice to see at least some sense of normalcy, and thanks a lot for taking the time today, Murph. All right, Izzy, Alex, have a great day. Enjoy the sunshine, and hope we have a good game tonight. Yes, we sure do. Canucks and Canadians tonight, 4 p.m. puck drop. If you're listening on Sportsnet 650, uh, we'll carry the programming for another hour here and uh, right up until puck drop. Canucks coverage right here on Sportsnet 650. Uh, A couple minutes here before we go, Alex. uh, What stood out from, from Murph's insights? Well, first off, remember when we used to get these early Saturday games, they were, you know, there was always that sort of pushback, whether it's like in Calgary or Vancouver, because you're sort of catering to that Eastern audience. But in a way, if like, if it's a Saturday, you get the early game, the game's done early, you can go out for dinner, go out on the town. That was all sort of pre-pandemic. Now it's sort of, you know, the the game's over early, we'll go home, we'll watch some Yellowstone or something, you know, like there's not too much going on. Um, No, I just, I think, you know, Murph's been around this team, uh, this franchise for, you know, upwards of two decades now. And, you know, I think reading between the lines there, you can see that um, this start has been problematic. But when you look at the short, you know, 56 game schedule, 
it magnifies it even more. It's almost as if the Canucks have started, you know, two and 11 and, you know, the pressure has started to kind of get pointed at Pedersen's direction for the first time. He's, you know, in his Vancouver career, you know, little questions about Hughes. These are the things in a, in a Canadian market when things don't go well, these are the, this is the negative side of being in a Canadian market where there's so much attention and it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see how the Canucks, if they can, they can shift this fairly quickly here because otherwise this could really start to snowball. And, you know, as, as we talked about, there's, there's some people within the organization that are in key positions here that their futures are up in the air. Um, you know, we talked about Travis green, but Ian Clark, the goaltending coaches on his last year as well. Um, you would think they would like to retain him, especially with a young Thatcher Demko sort of in the middle of his development. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, it'll be interesting to see the changes that the Canucks make tonight, especially because we're going to be able to see them facing the exact same team. Yep. Yep. All right. Plenty more Canucks talk still to come, but coming up next, Sportsnet Stephen Brunt weighs in on the Blue Jays' big signing of George Springer, the NFL games, maybe even Conor McGregor. Plenty of t- to talk about with him. This is On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. This is Sportsnet Today, and you're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Now here are your hosts, Israel and Alex. This is On Air, Israel Fair, Alex Blair, live every Saturday, Sportsnet 650, Sportsnet 960. Uh, Plenty more hockey talk to come, Canucks and Habs. Starts 4 p.m. Pacific time, that early puck drop. Uh, coverage right here, Sportsnet 650, if that's where you're listening throughout the day. But uh, coming up here, we're going to talk to Sportsnet's Stephen Brunt about uh, a huge story with the Blue Jays, probably their biggest, well, financially, literally their biggest free agent signing of all time, George Springer, six years, $150 million. Uh, what this means for this group, a young group that surprised some people this season, uh, what Springer adds to the lineup what this says about the organization. Mark Shapiro, who just signed a five-year extension to remain a CEO and president of the Blue Jays. Uh, lots to dig into there. And also some some NFL talk uh, with uh, pretty appetizing matchups in Sunday's championship games. But uh, we've been circling the Blue Jays since we've had this show, Alex, and a lot of talk about the potential moves that they might make seemed like Francisco Lindor was at the top of their wish list. He ends up going to the New York Mets in a trade. But George Springer was a name that we'd heard since the start of free agency uh, was someone that the Blue Jays were interested in. They, they certainly paid the money to, to bring in a guy that's got the you know, multi, multi-time All-Star World Series MVP. He's got a lot on his resume. He does. And, you know, it's uh, the way the cookie kind of crumbled here. It, uh, the Lindor piece fell first and the sort of the Jays were there and there was some disappointment because, you know, he ended up going to the Mets. Um, you know, then there was the other piece that fell and, you know, they're kind of left there. There was nobody left in the market seemingly for George Springer and the, and the Jays were sort of uncharacteristically able to kind of outbid the rest of the field. Um, I'm the most curious about this is just from an ownership standpoint with Rogers. Like this seems to be a huge financial commitment. I'm wondering sort of what this says about what they see 
the Blue Jays being for not just the franchise, but for sort of Rogers as a whole over the next five or six years. Uh, you touched on the Mark Shapiro extension as well. Um, there was some thought that they were getting Michael Brantley as well. You know, right. and I don't I don't think that that was a financial reason they didn't get him. That was just a choice to to go back to Houston. So, um, you know, you covered the Blue Jays for a few years. I know a lot of the talk now has shifted to sort of the pitching and starting rotation here. Yeah. Where do you think the Jays rotation lines up as far as like the AL East and is in your mind, do they need to improve it to compete? Yeah, if if they could add another solid starter, that would really relieve some of the the load on on Nate Pearson, who's still got very high expectations. But we saw in the shortened season last year that uh, he's going to have some pretty high highs. He's got some great stuff, but is still a, a young pitcher in this league. And uh, Ryu was great for the Blue Jays last year. That was uh, an A plus signing in, in every respect in year one. But maybe some concerns about the health going forward. And I do think that's what. The, the Blue Jays are are focused in on right now. All right, let's bring in Stephen Brunt from Sportsnet, a man who has uh, spent a lot of time covering these Blue Jays and uh, gotten to do some some sit down chats with uh, people like Mark Shapiro. So has a very good sense of uh, where this organization is at, what they are striving to achieve. Uh, first of all, thanks a lot for taking the time today, Stephen. Uh, let's start with the George Springer move because uh, as much as attention that the, the Ryu signing got last offseason. This is from a financial perspective and also probably from just a pure baseball perspective. Uh, the biggest move that this organization has made with Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins in charge. What was your your reaction to to the signing? Yeah, well, it might be the it might be. Hey, how you doing? Number one. Um, it may be the biggest move they've ever made, period. Like, never mind right. Mark Shapiro in terms of free agency that, you know, it's a. Uh, it has been tricky luring top of the market free agents to Toronto, you know, and there's a, you can kind of go down the list and, you know, if you want, unless you want to go all the way back to 92, 93, when they had the highest payroll in baseball and when winning, winning those world series, and they brought in some guys at the end of their careers to kind of put them over the top, the Dave Winfields and Paul Molitor and Jack Morris and, you know, Dave Stewart and guys like that. But in terms of getting a guy right at the top of the market, um, yeah, it's never it's never really happened before. You know, Ryu was a big signing last year. You know, the year they signed AJ Burnett and BJ Ryan under, when JP Ricciardi was running the team, that was a big thing. Uh, but this, I think this one kind of stands alone. To be honest, it's a, it's 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 a uh, it's kind of a signature moment for the team. Well, and as he touched on it, Stephen, it, uh, you know, during hockey season, it's hard to bump the Leafs off the front page, but I felt uh, even from Calgary here, listening to Toronto radio, that it's, it became the number one story throughout most of this week. Um, what do the Blue Jays get in Springer and how does he change their lineup? Well, he, he feels, you know, the, their, their biggest need in terms of position players was, you know, they, they talked about this going into the offseason to the idea that they, you know, they, they needed to become a better defensive team, run prevention, right? Which is not something we talk about a whole lot. Um, but especially defense up the middle does make a difference. It, you know, makes your pitch and stop better. It shortens games, does all kinds of things. So they did, and they didn't really have a natural center fielder on their roster. They had Randall Gritchick playing there. Who's not a great defensive center fielder. Um, you have Jonathan Davis, who's kind of a fourth outfielder, fifth outfielder guy, who's very good defensively, but not a good offensive player. And there was, you know, really one guy in this free agent market who is not just, you know, a very good, you know, a plus defensive center fielder, but also 
you know, a really superb offensive player and a guy who's played on a good team and a championship team. You know, and Springer's the, he was the best position player in the market. So they, you know, they, they kind of shot high here. And, uh, the, I, I think that the market is weird this year. You know, there's, it's obviously like we're in the middle of a, they had to just come off a shortened season with no fans. They're going to play maybe 162 this year, but nobody knows if they're going to sell any tickets. Uh, a lot of teams are backing off the normal, some of the normally aggressive teams in pre-agency are not. So, you know, I think the combination of the Jays and their ownership being willing to jump in here and get, you know, the best option for them, whatever it cost, combined with the fact that the, the market was a little bit softer than it would normally be, you know, it, it worked out for them. Like, George Springer costs you more in a non-pandemic situation, uh, and, I'm, and I'm not sure the Jays get them. You touched on ownership there, and that was one of the things I wanted to ask you, Steve, is, um, you know, at times we've seen the Jays go all in, and then at times it seems like they've sort of backed off. The question of what the payroll is going to be is always a big question in Toronto. Um, what does this move in the financial commitment signify to you from what, you know, ownership and the Rogers family would like to see from this team going forward in the next, you know, five or six years? Well, I think, it, you know, first of all, that you know, there it was made possible by the fact that, they are a low payroll team right now because of the the work that the front office has done over the last two or three years. They, you know, this is a team of young, you know, some really exciting young players, but young players, guys who are not even arbitration eligible. So, you know, that cuts your financial, their, their financial obligations going into this off season were minimal. And, you know, the, the, some of the bad money that was left over from those, you know, very good teams in 2015 and 16 is gone. So you're not, you know, paying off the end of, uh, Troy Tulowitzki or Russell Martin, you know, you're not, you don't have obligations to guys who are, you know, where you're paying them for past performance. So, so they had a lot of wiggle room. This is a team that, you know, was up to about 160 million in payroll when they when they had those two uh, postseason appearances, and their obligations this year were like 70 million dollars. So, you know, you've got a lot of you, you had a lot of space, and that's by design, right? Like that's that's what you try to do um, is. Uh, draft well, develop well, build a young core, and then augment it with free agency rather than doing it the other way around. So they, they created a situation um, where, so it's not like they've had to set a new, put the bar in a new, a place where it's never been before. They're, you know, they're still going to come in. I still got a little work to do, but here, but they're going to come in a little over a hundred million dollars in payroll this year, I think, and they're going to have a contending team. So, you know, it's not, it's not a bad deal for Rogers. Uh, but, you know, the other part of it is that they've, you know, I think, the ownership, which runs a publicly traded, you know, communication company, uh, not a, you know, not it's not a baseball company, and they, you know, mm-hmm. they have to kind of look out for their shareholders by definition. Um, so they're not going to do anything romantic, but they they can see what happened in 2015 and 2016 when they won. You know, they can they can look at the, the stadium being full, and they can look at the TV numbers. So there's kind of a test case as to what happens if you have a winning baseball team in Toronto. A, you know, a recent test case. And, you know, the proof is there that if you do, you can make a lot of money. So, this, you know, it's investment spending. But, you know, you, you've got to give the front office credit for, you know, A, putting them in a position to do this and, and B, communicating that to ownership effectively, right? Because that's always the, the dance with the Jays is, you know, you do, you do have to sell them on things that are not guaranteed because sports isn't guaranteed. 
Right. And even last year, uh, it was overall a pretty encouraging season. But then if you were to analyze the 60 game season, there were some stretches where the offense wasn't great, where the bullpen wasn't great, where they were being carried by different parts of the team. And I guess you can get away with that in the 60 game season versus uh, 162 games. When you look at this group now, Springer is obviously going to make a, a big difference either in the middle of the order or at the top of the order. There's still maybe some questions about the infield. Uh, there have been some bullpen arms added, but I think every team in baseball would take uh, another five to 10 guys that would be potential bullpen options for them. And then, uh, of course, the starting rotation. Where do you imagine the Blue Jays uh, are targeting next and, and just how high? I don't think anyone's expecting a Springer type acquisition at any of those positions. But what kind of impact could could a player uh, bring to the team in, in any one of those spots? Yeah, I think actually bullpen wise, they, you know, they they still might be an unbred hand, but I think the Yates signing is a, is pretty significant. You know, a guy, you know, he had a physical issue last year, but before that, for the last two years before that, was a you know one of the best two or three relievers in baseball. So you know, if he's healthy, that's a pretty good move. And you know, Jordan Romano was very effective for the Jays when he was healthy last year, and Delise was healthy, and they, these guys have done a really good job building bullpens out of without spending any money. So, you know, the fact that they went in and spent some money this time, um, you know, they don't have Ken Giles now, obviously, because he's coming off Tommy John. He's a free agent now. But uh, maybe, you know, they may still be in on Brad Hand, but um, they got a lot of arms. Um, and we saw that even during the shortened season last year. Now, we saw a lot of guys who would have otherwise been pitching in the minors, but there was no minor leagues. Um, but they, they, they do. I think they they have the makings of a bullpen. Uh, I But I think... You'll see they they need to add a starting pitcher at least one, and I think it'll probably come. It probably won't be Trevor Bauer. It'll probably come from the next tier of guys who are out there. The you know the Jake Odorizzi's, those kind of guys might be a trade. You know we which hasn't happened yet. They've got a lot of uh, prospect capital they could wheel, and then I think they're going to have to they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do at third base. So uh, you know they they had Shaw there last year, who wasn't great. Um, you know. Vladdy says he wants to go back and play there, but ideally they wouldn't do that. But I think you know there's there's some infielders kicking around, Simmons is kicking around, uh, Colton Wong. You know there's some there's some infield options that might allow them to reconfigure their infield and get it and, and improve it defensively. So I would say I, I would expect them to sign a starting pitcher and an infielder, but at, at the at the very least. But I I don't yeah I I know there's been talk about them and Trevor Bauer, but that seems to me. Um, you know, again, maybe the market will come back to them to the point where they say, what the heck, let's let's take a shot. But that seems to be a bridge too far, as far as I can see. Sportsnet's Stephen Brunt joining us on air. Uh, last one for me, Stephen, before we switch to the uh, NFL matchups this weekend. Um, it was sort of noted and it raised a few eyebrows, the extension of Mark Shapiro being dropped on the first day of the NHL sort of return to play. Just wondering, sort of, was that coincidental? Is there more to read into that? Um, because I feel like the narrative on Shapiro and Atkins has started to shift and is, you know, seen through a much more favorable light right now. I, you know, I, I, I actually didn't think that. You know, it came out in the middle of the day on on, on the, uh, that day with a full blown Rogers press release with Edward Rogers quotes all over it. So it wasn't like they were pretending it didn't happen. And I, I'm trying to remember the last time. There was an announcement about you know a, a president of the Toronto Blue Jays being extended. I can't remember one. You know uh, there haven't been a whole lot of presidents in the history of this team. You know there's uh, Peter Bavese, Paul Beeston, Paul Godfrey, Paul Beeston, uh, yeah. Mark Shapiro. That's it. 
but it's not, you know, it's not like they spend a lot of time talking about the contract status of the guys in the front office publicly. They haven't. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think they were trying to hide it because why would you? And I think they're happy with him, you know, and they should be happy with him. He's done a really good job. You know, he came in and those guys came in, you know, he, he hired Ross Atkins, but they came in at a really you know tricky moment when, uh, Shapiro was hired to replace Beeston at a coming in, into the 2015 season when the team had been spinning its wheels for several years and didn't seem to be going anywhere. Uh, and then, you know, the magic happened halfway through that year. And so by the time he arrived, you know, Alex Anthopoulos was a folk hero in Toronto and everybody loved the Jays and who were these guys, you know, it's, so it was, it, it was awkward for reasons that are not his fault. Uh, and, but, you know, because of that, you know, even though they were back in the playoffs in 2016, there's been, there's one element in the fan base that was never going to accept them. But I think that element has, you know, is down to a, is diminished tremendously at that point. Cause you look from a, if, from a baseball standpoint, it's hard to argue with what they've done. Um, you know, again, the cleaning up the, the, the payroll, the roster that way, their drafts have been very successful. Um, the development operation looks like it's doing a good job there. They've got a wave of young talent coming through the system. And then, the, you know, to go out in the market and get Ryu last year, probably a year before anybody thought they would be aggressive for free agent. And then this year, go out and sign the guy at the top of the market. So, you know, from a fan point of view, I'm not sure how you argue with that. As Alex mentioned, uh, we also want to get your thoughts on uh, a pretty solid conference championship slate in the NFL. I think uh, given even the the weird circumstances of this season, this is about as good as it could have gotten for the neutral NFL fan on one side, two all-time quarterbacks on the AFC side, two dynamic teams with young quarterbacks. What do you make of of the teams that have made it to the the conference championship and and what are you expecting out of the games on Sunday? Yeah, it's not not bad. eh? Like you've got what? The, th- the last three MVPs, probably the last four MVPs, because Rodgers will win it this year. Um, you got two guys who are going to hall are are already in the Hall of Fame essentially, and uh, another guy. Well, three guys who are going to be in the Hall of Fame. Um, yeah, it's 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 not a it's not a bad mix. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. Dynamic young quarterbacks. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it, it's been a actually it's been quite a spectacular playoff. I think you know it 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 really has. It's weird you know in this weird year. Um, you know, maybe we're spending more time as couch potatoes watching football than we normally would. But you know, you you, you can't argue with the the matchups and 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 the quality. I, I, I look, I think they're two great, tremendously competitive football games. You know, I've I've, I've been wrong on just about a lot of picks. You know, look, I, I live a hour and a bit away from the stadium above the Bill Stadium in Orchard Park. I covered that team yeah. forever, all the four Super Bowl years and before that, and. Uh, you know, talk about a team that's ahead of schedule. I, but about five games or six games around, you know, around the time of the Hale Murray, you know, just before and then after, started kind of thinking, well, actually, who's better than these guys? Um, and I thought Baltimore would beat them. I you know, to be honest, I thought Baltimore would beat them. Um, and some things bounced their way in that game, obviously. Some things bounced their way in the Colts game. But, um, you know, and now we'll, we'll see what kind of shape Mahomes is in. And uh, I guess that's the X factor here. And, you know, in normal circumstances, you would say, well, the you know, Chiefs are the best team in the league and defending Super Bowl champions, and Mahomes is an impossible guy to defend. But, uh, yeah, it's hard not, you know, I, again, maybe this is my, my hometown thing showing a little bit, but I, I, I'm one of the people, a lot of people rooting for the Bills here. 
And and you know they, the the long suffering fans they couldn't go in the stadium this year until the very end. But boy, that yeah, that fan base. It's been this this season has been a really really happy surprise for them. Yeah, their first uh, conference championship since 1993. Um, Stephen, correct me if I'm wrong. You were at Brady's first Super Bowl, correct, in New Orleans, 2001. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was. I was. I think I was. I think I. But I was at all of them. Um, so yeah, I've. Uh, you know, and that. You know, and and at that back in 2001, he was still the guy that, you know, the sixth round draft pick who stepped in. Uh, you know, kind of, and unexpectedly took that team to the Super Bowl, and you know, you st- I, I think most people are still not fully convinced by him, even after he won that Super Bowl. But uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, and I've watched him this year. I, I thought last week that you know it wasn't quite like Peyton Manning at the end with the Broncos, where the you know, Broncos won that Super Bowl and just carried him to the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, because he couldn't really play anymore. But you know, you you are seeing, you know, you 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 see aspects of Brady that are different now, obviously, and as he heads to his mid forties, you know, compared to that guy. Uh, but that's a, you know, that, that team, that Tampa team has all the elements. It just, you know, there are times this year when it just didn't gel, right. Where you would, they play, they would play a great half and then a terrible half. And, you know, the offense would look out of sync. Um, but, you know, they may be, you know, this, this may be that moment where I, I, I think on a talent basis, they can play with green Bay. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if, it, if, if at all, you know, they're going to miss Antonio Brown, but, I think on a pure talent basis, they have every chance to win that game. Looking looking at what Brady's done over his career and now the fact that he's doing it with another franchise because for so long he was tied at the hip with Bill Belichick, is there any athlete in sports that you can kind of compare to sort of the run and the longevity that Brady has had? Oh, boy, that's a, that's a tricky one. You know, like there's you know so few guys that play as long as he's played. It's just, um, you know, I... I I, you know, I, in, in terms of quarterbacks, I was a Joe Montana guy. I was around for Montana's last Super Bowl. I love Joe Montana, and I, you know, that San Francisco team. And of course, you, know, you mentioned the the Bills' last champion, AFC Championship game. That's they beat Joe Montana, Kansas City Chief Joe Montana in that game. So, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of Joe Montana's career, when he was sort of, you know, he, when he was diminished. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I can convince that Tom Brady's the greatest quarterback who ever lived. Um, yeah, and I and I believe we've lived through the greatest era of quarterbacking that we ever will. You know, like we have maybe maybe the next iteration, maybe the, you know the the Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes era will be just as good. But you know, to think that you know we got to see Brady and Breeze and Manning, you know, uh, and Aaron Rodgers and all these guys play like you're, you know, we got to see probably four of the best six quarterbacks in history play in the last fifteen years, twenty years. You know, it's it's astounding. But to, you know, Brady to me is. And I yeah this year, you know again even though physically he's not quite the same guy, you know the fact that he could go into a different situation without Belichick without, um, albeit surrounded by better talent than he was surrounded with a lot of those years in in New England. So don't forget that right like he hasn't had a receiving core this good. I don't think he ever had a receiving core this good. And maybe the Randy Moss years, but I'm not sure he's had a, a receiving core this good at any time during that run with the uh, with the Patriots. Yeah, certainly, you know, a lot of weapons, uh, and maybe he's not doing it quite the same way as he he was doing it in that that heyday with the Patriots. But he's he's made the throws when he's had to, and it uh, it makes for a really compelling championship Sunday. Uh, Stephen, thanks a lot for the time. We really appreciate it. Enjoy the games, uh, and uh, hope to talk to you soon. All right. All right. Take care, guys. Good talking to you.
All right, Sportsnet's Stephen Brunt uh, with perspective on the Blue Jays. He said it, biggest signing in history of the franchise, yeah. uh, which is true from a financial perspective. Of course, salary is much bigger now than they were back then. But uh, it's still, still hard to argue uh, with the, the significant factor. I mean, I think you could also look at uh, bringing in Roger Clemens. That was a huge yeah. deal in the late 90s, though not remembered maybe in the same way, even though if you look at Roger Clemens' numbers, his two years in Toronto, they're about as good as he ever was. Uh, yeah. And that's you know peak of the steroid era. Clemens uh, also implicated in the steroid era. But uh, here's, here's George Springer from a, a team in Houston that, I know for a fact, having covered the Blue Jays, is a team uh, cheating scandal notwithstanding that the organization looks up to. They like the way that they develop their players. They like the way that they play baseball. And George Springer has been at the top of that list. Uh, he's been an incredible postseason performer. I'm one of those people that's generally not sure how much credit to give to a player for having consistent postseason performances like that. But um, when he's when he's played in the playoffs, he's been an absolute monster with the World Series MVP in 2017 and uh, even with their run to the championship in 2019. Uh, just about as good as they come. And as, as Steven said, a big difference in the way that Toronto's outfield's going to look. All right, coming up next, we'll wrap up the show for this week. Some more thoughts on the Canucks, the Flames, uh, what to look forward to in the week in sports. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot going on. The Canucks and Habs, Conor McGregor's fighting tonight. And uh, one of the great baseball players of all time, died earlier this week we'll pay tribute to hank aaron and we'll do that next you're listening to on air with israel fair and alex blair Sportsnet today, and you're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Now, here are your hosts, Israel and Alex. Wrapping up on air this week, Israel Fair, Alex Blair, live every Saturday, Sportsnet 650, Sportsnet 960. It is a Canucks game day. So, if you're listening on Sportsnet 650, continuing coverage ahead of Canucks and Canadians. An early puck drop tonight, 4 o'clock, uh, but pregame continues right on after us all the way through to uh, game time. And then, of course, uh, continued post-game coverage from there. Again, if you are listening to us on Sportsnet 650. Uh, before we wrap up the show, put a bow on a few things, Alex. Just going to go into the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text box for a second here. And it's a, a subject that we broached a little bit throughout the show, but didn't dive in too far into. Uh, here's the text from Devin in Saskatoon. It's time for Pedersen to wake up from his offseason nap. It's getting embarrassing. Uh, there are some of those people on the extreme end that uh, have looked at Pedersen's play here over the first six games of the season and and haven't seen a lot. Uh, where are you? Uh, I don't imagine that you're overly concerned, but what have you made of, of PD's play so far this year? Well, it hasn't been good. Uh, I mean, quite frankly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think most Canucks fans, Devin, would like PD to wake up. Um, I think in the long run, he will. Uh, the numbers and the t the fact that he's done it over two years. He's too good a player. Um, I'm not sure why he's off to the slow start, but it, 
at certain points, all the great players are going to have slumps. The timing is uh, is less than ideal, but I think that this could have happened at any point. Um, but when I when I look at it, he has looked out of sorts. I mean, I think that turnover he had against the Habs the other night at that point, like I was thinking back to it. Stunning. Isn't, yeah. And it was, they had just tied the game up. They'd kind of gotten out of the period 2-2. They had this, they had clean ice for almost a two-minute power play. Yeah. And you're not expecting your best player to make such an egregious turnover, which really just turned the game. Just out of nowhere, too, right? Totally. And it was was a terrible turnover, but it was magnified by when it happened and where it happened within the game. And you know what? Quite frankly, I mean, it's inexcusable. Um, But you know what? Pedersen is going to be a great player. And you know what? Long term, I'm not overly concerned. What would concern me a little bit, and this isn't new to Pedersen, but when things don't go well in a passionate hockey market or a Canadian hockey market, things can become all-encompassing. And I just hope that you know Vancouver gets to enjoy Pedersen, and Pedersen gets to enjoy Vancouver for a long period of his career, if not his whole career. I hope the same for Quinn Hughes. Um, I hope for the same for Matthew Kachuk in Calgary. I hope that those fan bases do not turn on those players through through short slumps. I hope that things that are not, you know, personal items that are away from the ice, I hope those don't get brought up and get brought into the argument and turn these things into, you know, situations that are hard to put back in the in the box for those players. Um, but that's, that would be my only concern long-term. I think PD will be, will be just fine. Yeah. Well said. And I think you're right. Uh, we have evolved, I think as sports fans generally, uh, to criticize Pedersen for having too many interests outside of hockey and things like that probably, uh, is overlooking what we covered to start the show. Uh, the defense and the puck moving ability that we have seen from the back end has been lacking to be fair. And, uh, outside of, you know, Miller's had some moments. Besser's had some moments. Horvat's looked really good. Even and, and you know, Hoaglander's looked good too. Um, may, but Hoaglander, I don't think is going to be a, a dominant point producer right away. Um, I don't think anyone's expecting that. He's a guy that's going to bring energy, and he's brought that, and he's looked good playing with Horvat, and he's gotten a chance to play with Pedersen. So that's at least you know some some depth there, a complementary player that can uh, help the team along. But uh, scoring hasn't been. A huge problem for this team, especially when when the power play has been going. Uh, let's uh, let's dive into uh, some of Stephen Brunt's comments about the Blue Jays because this is a fascinating time for this team. It's really interesting to look at the Mark Shapiro, Ross Atkins era. As Stephen detailed, Shapiro comes in during the 2015 season when the Blue Jays, uh, and as he mentioned, uh, it had been you know about five years of them trying to build around Jose Bautista making a bunch of different moves. The 2013 offseason obviously stands out, making trades with the Marlins, making trades uh, with the Mets to, to, to bring in R.A. Dickey. It took a couple of years for some of those pieces to fit. It took another offseason to trade for Josh Donaldson, to sign Russ Martin, and push that team toward the playoffs. But they were still by no means a juggernaut from the start. So Shapiro comes into a situation where the team is still, still trying to find its way and, of course, makes another all-in move, trade deadline, Troy Tulowitzki, David Price goes on a run that uh, I think if you're a Canadian baseball fan, if you care about the Blue Jays, you'll cherish fondly, even though the Blue Jays didn't win the World Series. And then all of a sudden, what was supposed to be a bit of a reset uh, turned into a different scenario. 
And so Shapiro and eventually hiring Ross Atkins as the GM had to be a little bit more patient while still developing the farm system and, and bringing some of the players along there. But there was some some questions. I think people got so caught up in that run in 2015, and I don't blame them. I, I was caught up in it covering it. It was it was complete. It was you know baseball heaven, in, in other words, especially for a fan base that hadn't been in the playoffs since the early 90s. But here we are coming off of a pretty encouraging season where there's still a lot of bright spots with this team and they make a you know a, a big financial commitment to a player that's uh as steven said was the the best position player available as a free agent you might argue francisco lindor is a better player but you got to give up a bunch of trade assets in that situation the blue jays they they put their money where the, their mouth was yeah well and and you'll remember this is he part of it was timing remember like they had announced that paul beeston was going to be done at the end of the year and they named Mark Shapiro his successor. I want to say it was in late June or late July. So he was announced, but hadn't taken the role. Yeah. And, you know, there were going to be, you know, and at that point, there wasn't really a whole lot of, the feeling was, okay, well, Alex Anthopoulos will be done at the end of the year. Yes. Um, but that'll be, you know, no one had their arms up at that point because the Jays hadn't really done anything under Alex. He'd taken his swing, as you mentioned, with the, the big Marlins trade. It had not worked out. They had the John Farrell incident where John kind of, you know, bounced back to Boston and that looked really poor on the Blue Jays under Anthopolis as well. And then all of a sudden they get on a bit of a roll. Alex swings those deals. I th- I want to say it was like early August. Is that, you know, just, it was after Shapiro. Before. Yeah. Okay. Just before. So late, late but, July. But the team gets on this roll and all of a sudden, as to Stephen's point, Alex Anthopolis became a folk hero. Like the in chants Toronto. in the stadium were, thank you, Alex. Yeah. And, and not so Alex Blair. Yeah, no. And, you know, so then all of a sudden there you have this, you know, incoming president who's sort of handcuffed because, you know, the, the reports came out fairly quickly that he had scolded Alex on the trades. He yes. had not liked them. Strategically and so, as well. Yes. And, you know, so unfortunately, and, and Stephen did the doc with Shapiro. And, you know, I know he knows Alex and Mark both quite well. Yep. But, you know, it was a completely brutal situation to come into and you know not totally all mark's fault in some ways it was totally timing but it's taken five years for him to sort of shed that negative image and to steven's point and i and i think of steven as a baseball guy steven's incredibly you know well read has covered a lot of sports but steven if you really ask him he is a baseball guy boxing and baseball probably yeah, and to sort of hear him walk through how, you know, they have rebuilt this team patiently. They got rid of the bad contracts. They put together young players who, you know, they have team control and they're now starting to extend their, you know, use their money that they have freed up to go and get marquee free agents. And the fact that they got one last year in Ryu, the yeah. fact that they got probably the guy at the top of the list this year in George Springer, um, I think that general baseball fans can start to sort of look at Shapiro and Atkins and say oh okay so they actually did know what they were doing I know they you know and um, I think the the turn in perspective will be big and hopefully they can the next five years the Jays can you know take that fan base on you know a really good run and and maybe they get that third world series for the franchise one of the things that I think is funny about the timing that you mentioned so Shapiro comes in in 2015 toward the end of that season but he's not hands-on yet until the offseason the Blue Jays you know, make some moves around the edges. Uh, they don't re-sign David Price, but they bring Jay Happ, and they they make the playoffs again in 2016 as a wild card, and they end up playing 
Cleveland in the championship series, the team where Shapiro and Ross Atkins had just come from. And this is the funny thing about perception or perspective. Instead of feeling like, well, that seems like a good sign that the team where these two guys just came from is at the same level as we are. They're they, they built a team that went to game seven of the World Series, or at least had a part in that. Yeah, It was still a more negative reaction. It was There was still that, as you mentioned, Alex, that that passion, that love for what Alex Anthopoulos did. And maybe part of it was his backstory and part of it was the risks that he took. And I think the overall, it was just people getting caught up in the groundswell of exciting baseball. But it was almost forgotten that they just came from an organization that was similarly talented to where the Blue Jays are at and actually made it further than the Blue Jays ever did, making it to Game 7 against the Cubs in 2016. And it's taken those five years to kind of chip away at some of that and yeah. uh, those prospects to come up. And I think we'll still probably have people on both sides fighting about who gets credit uh, depending on uh, you know how the the plays out. I mean, it happens here in Vancouver, right? Uh, with uh, the Canucks, who gets credit for the Sedins? Who gets credit for 2011? Who gets credit for this? Who gets credit for that? Uh, mm -hmm. Ultimately, I, I do think it's one of those things that probably gets talked about a lot for the teams that don't win the championship. Once the cha like championships cover everything, <laughs> so the Blue yeah. Jays are they're striving to get there. And as I said, uh, they talked a pretty big game going into the off season. It was slow going at the beginning, I do think, and and I'll include myself in there. I, I was getting a bit skeptical that they would pull something off, but they did. Uh, they 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 paid a premium price for a premium player in George Springer, and, and I'm excited to see what he looks like at the top of the Jays lineup. Yeah, no, so am I. I think that generally there was already a good young core there. There were some marquee players that, you know, their names and their stories had attracted fans. But I think now this takes it up a notch. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, one of the questions I had for Steven was just in a year where you're not guaranteed any, you know, fan revenue, you know, from from seats. Like, we don't know whether the Jays will be able to sell tickets. I mean, they could be back in Buffalo for all we know. Yeah. Um, it was an interesting expenditure for Rogers to go that, that far in. Um, quickly, I know, um, you know, something you wanted to get to, sticking with baseball, um, the passing of Hank Aaron this week. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you the floor here cause it's, uh, it was a big story and we should, we should, we should tackle it and his impact on the game, but also, yep. you know, an issue that I think our society has gone through still this year. Mm -hmm. Um, he had a big role to play, uh, within sports and within the major leagues. Yeah, absolutely. Alex, I thought it certainly worth mentioning lots of coverage. Uh, if you're looking for more Hank Aaron coverage, you know, check out Sportsnet and check out the athletic. Uh, where I where I do uh, my day job, uh, I had MLB Network on earlier today, and uh, obviously some tributes to Hank Aaron, who who died Friday at 86, uh, most famous for having been uh, the home run record holder before Barry Bonds passed him. So Henry Aaron passed Babe Ruth, uh, who had been the prior leader, and that was that was a huge huge story at the time and i can't pretend to have lived through it it happened well before i was born but uh, as a student of baseball it is a, a hugely significant moment uh he was a player that was playing in the south playing in atlanta mm -hmm. and uh i think there are a lot of people that could speak much better to the man that he was the legacy that he left uh and I encourage people to check that out because as you said, Alex, uh, I think we both agree that's important for people to to know this kind of stuff. Uh, I will say that statistically, there aren't a lot of players in, in Hank Aaron's category. Uh, he was not the kind, he, he had 
basically a 20 year, 20, 20 plus year career where he was a consistent top five hitter in the league. And he wasn't no, actually known as a home run hitter. He was a line drive guy who just happened to be really strong and could pull enough balls out of the park every year. Uh, he was, you know, 35 to, to 45 homer type territory, but consistent. And that consistency is something that uh, shouldn't be overlooked. It's, it's, it's a part of his broader legacy, if you will. And so, yeah, I just wanted to, to spend a couple of minutes to talk about a guy who uh, is, you know, if, the, if there's a Mount Rushmore for baseball, especially I would say the modern era, he's he's right up there and maybe mm-hmm. doesn't get the credit because he wasn't wasn't as flashy and he's not the home run record holder anymore, though. I know some people still put him in that category because of they, they don't want to acknowledge Barry Bonds. Yeah, but um, he's I think there's you know, a lot of people right in that camp. Yeah. And I think yeah. we saw a lot of them come out of the woodworks the last couple of days. Yeah. Well, and, you know, as you touched on, Hank Aaron's era was before both of us. And so it's really hard. You know, we can see highlights on YouTube. Uh, We can read things in articles or in books. I think it's really hard to sort of get the context of that era. The thing that jumped out the most to me, I went back and, and was watching that sort of historical run. And it's Vin Scully, who's one of the greats, if not the greatest baseball play by play commentator. And it's almost jarring but it shows you sort of a difference in era and perspective, but he acknowledges what a significant moment it is for a black man in the South to be getting a standing ovation. And it's sort of the terminology and the way he says it so freely that would almost be seen as, you know, a little uncomfortable in today's day and age in, you know, how we refer to things and how we talk about things. But that was obviously the way that it was viewed at the time. And in some ways still is. And that was, you know, I think that gives you a little bit of an insight into the significance of that moment, specifically with race relations within baseball and within the United States. Um, the thing that I wanted to, to quickly chat about, and this is almost going back a week, but it's not something that's been sorted out, was the NHL's COVID protocols. And, you know, at the end of last week, we had this situation with JT Miller and, and Jordy Ben in Vancouver. And it was unclear, you know, there were reports that Jordy Ben had tested positive and there were reports that JT Miller had, you know, was a close contact. And the initial feeling was, okay, well, JT Miller's got to sit out for two weeks. And, you know, lots of the reporters and writers and everything are trying to tackle this. And what I learned through the process is the Canucks are not able to say anything. And all it would have required was a really quick statement saying, you know, Jordy Ben tested positive for COVID. JT Miller was a close contact under those under that the protocol is he needs to self-isolate for seven days. He needs to come back with four negative tests, but the NHL has taken that ability away from the teams. They've taken it away from the province of British Columbia and they're not releasing that information. And I think as a public health matter, specifically in Canada where they've had to go to the premiers of the five provinces, I think that should be made public. I think it's, if they're not hiding anything, and I don't believe they are, I don't know why they don't make it public. And I was just a little disappointed in the NHL that, you know, just come forward. Just let us know what the player has to do. You know, does he have to sit out for two weeks because he tested positive? That's fine. It's not a privacy issue. They're already naming the players that are on the COVID list. But right. just give us some understanding as to what the protocols are. And, you know, I unfairly pointed it at the Canucks. But as I found out, you know, the Canucks have their hands tied. They're, they are not able to release that information. The league has taken that away. And 
Um, that's something I hope that the league would change because it was really confusing for a lot of, you know, and not just reporters, it's fans. Who's going to be in the lineup, those types of things. And as we inch closer and closer to betting, the NHL is going to have to make roster and, you know, personnel decisions more public. And that's something that they have never been good at and they continue to not handle particularly well in the COVID era. Yes. And obviously COVID is different than a, a sprained ankle, a, a broken bone, you know, something like that. So there, there are some complicating factors there, but the betting point is spot on because the future of professional sports, and I don't think I'm overstating this and I'm, I'm actually not uh, someone who, dabbles very much in in gambling and sports betting it's not what intrigues me about pro sports but the trends are they're they're so clear the future of professional sports there is a huge part of it that lies with sports betting we're seeing leagues like the nba get more involved we're seeing major league baseball even get more involved the major league baseball is obviously it's the oldest professional sport in north america it's also the one that has the, the most kind of famous ties to, to sports gambling, if you will, with Pete Rose and so on. But the NBA has got the referee scandal, which is just, you know, that's within the last 20 years. Uh, hockey, there have been, you know, whispers of stuff, but nothing that I think rises to the level of Pete Rose or, or Tim Donahue. But that's going to be, if, if NHL, if the league or professional sports leagues, the NHL are going to partner with sports books, if they're going to make sports betting part of the official experience, this is some, this is somewhere where they're going to have to, to change the culture and change the way that they, that they tend to navigate injuries and so on and so forth. And it might not be what uh, some of the, the, the more traditional hockey fans might want probably that speaks to the people in the commissioner's office, but this is most likely, especially as we're talking about advertising and things that the league might try to do creatively to generate revenue. Yep. Uh, it's that's, that's the, the slam dunk because as I said, I, and to me, like it's, I'd still watch pro sports gambling or not, but it is definitely the entry point for a lot of people at this point. No, for sure. And I, and I, from a health matter, a lot of us across Canada and in different provinces were being asked to make commitments and sacrifices in different ways. And, you know, that's sort of public. We have an understanding as to what we're meant to do. I don't think that the Canucks are outside of that. I think that they should have to come forward with it. Um, and yeah, I was just, I was sort of disappointed with, you know, BC public health officials because they wouldn't publicize it and uh, was disappointed in the NHL. Like, you know, if a player is a close contact, just let us know what his procedure is. You know, if a player tests positive, let us know what that procedure is so that, you know, at least there's some clarity and transparency to the process. Um, all right, just before we wrap up, what are you looking forward to in the next seven days? I don't think it's going to take very long for you, for you to get to what you're excited for. No, I'm, I'm looking forward to football Sunday. Stephen Brunt said it. Maybe it's because we're in this COVID pandemic era. We're not really supposed to be outside. Uh, so it's encouraged, even though it's a you know beautiful, beautiful, it's been a beautiful week here in Vancouver, uh, encouraged to sit inside, watch football. Uh, I agree with Steve. Uh, I think the football has been pretty great so far and, uh, I know that you've been following the Tom Brady story pretty closely throughout this season, kind of intrigued as to how it plays out. And here's the big stage against the Aaron Rodgers, the guy who's the MVP. If this, I think it's going to be a ton of fun. Yeah, I was actually surprised that that was the early game. I, I mean, I don't know how they do the scheduling for TV, but uh, that's the noon Pacific one mountain time game. 
uh, the Bucks at Green Bay, and then 340 Pacific, 440 Mountain. We've got uh, the Bills rolling into Kansas City. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I just look at the 20-year career. I think this is his uh, Brady's 14th conference championship. And the fact that he's now done it without Belichick, I think could answer a lot of questions. I also look at if Brady gets through and if Ma, if the Chiefs get get through, you'll have Brady Mahomes, which I think would be like just a star-studded marquee at the Super Bowl uh, in Tampa as well. So um, I'm sort of looking at this week, but I'm also looking at sort of the trickle down for the week after at the at the Super Bowl. Yeah, fired up for it tomorrow Sunday. Should be fun. Uh, all right, that's it for us. Thanks to our technical producer Joel Godet. Thanks to Dan Murphy and Stephen Brunt for joining us. Check out the podcast if you missed those interviews. Coming up next, Hockey Central Saturday, Sportsnet 650, Sportsnet Today on Sportsnet 960. We'll be back next week. This is On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair.